And I, I do just want to note that we all here at the news service are a- aware of the alleged correct pronun- pronunciation <laughs> of comptroller being <laughs> controller, but we choose not to observe it. The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, it's another busy week on Beacon Hill in a couple of ways with a dramatic denouement to the uh, supplemental budget drama in the House and Senate with that bill finally finding its way to Governor Baker's desk in the wee hour, well, just about the wee hours of Thursday morning. Uh, late Wednesday night, and a lot of holiday parties up here, too. Um, And it was actually pointed out to me by more than one lawmaker this week that, and this is an interesting thing that I had never thought of, they face a lot of stress between all the holiday parties they're invited to and feel obligated to attend. And I was talking to one state... Oh, I I feel so bad for them. (laughs) Well, I mean, I talked to one state rep who hadn't had time to check his email in two days. He's just been in the car bouncing around, but... Missed a lot of news service stories along the way, I bet. I suppose so. And uh, here to talk with us about some of these big stories from this week, besides the the evening social engagements, uh, are Colin Young, Katie Lennon, and Matt Murphy of the Statehouse News Service. Hi, folks. Hey, Sam. Hey, looking forward to recapping a few things for anyone who might have been too busy with holiday parties to to keep on there. (laughs) We were almost too busy with holiday parties with two of our own. We were. Right. Uh, On Tuesday and Thursday, uh, and thank goodness Wednesday was left clear for Matt Murphy to sit around in the House and Senate until after midnight. Um, (laughs) You were thinking, thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. Thank goodness. It's Um, a holiday miracle. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, as we spoke about the last couple of weeks, the comptroller of the state, Andrew Mailer, had been wading into uh, this drama between the House and Senate budget negotiators trying to come up with a final spending bill to uh, spend away that surplus from fiscal 2019. Uh, ultimately, Mailer set a hard 3 p.m. deadline on Wednesday, which if the conference committee did not uh, come to an agreement by then, he was going to just sweep that surplus all into the rainy day fund. Uh, so, Katie, you and I went over to Mailer's office to see if we could see the the transfer funds button being pushed at 3 p.m. Wednesday? If it even was a button, we were looking forward to figuring out, is it a button? Is it a switch? Is it a trap door? <laughs> um, how does a this giant broom? unprecedented move take shape? And in the grand tradition of uh, Beacon Hill deadlines, this one came and passed without the <laughs> anticipated action. Yeah. And we got two different stories, in a way, about what happened at that moment at 3 o'clock. The comptroller said the Ways and Means chairman had begged him for more time and that they were close on a deal. The Ways and Means chairman said that didn't happen. Uh, Who's telling the truth here? Great question. I I look forward to finding out. (laughs) But, yeah, the the comptroller ultimately decided that there, there had been enough progress to not make the move and... He held off, and lo and behold, a, a deal did emerge that evening. Yeah, we're not exactly sure who called who. Uh, the comptroller, of course, said that the Ways and Means chairs directly reached out to him and made a personal request to postpone his 3 o'clock deadline. Uh, the Ways and Means chairmen, especially on the House, we had 
uh, I, I got some personal pushback from members of the House who said that uh, not only was it Mailer who reached out first, but that no request was made. But what we do know is they did update the comptroller at that point in time uh, before the 3 o'clock deadline, suggested to him that they were making progress and that a deal was within reach, and Mailer ultimately backed off that threat to give them a little more time, which uh, they took all the way to midnight. So in this three-way standoff that we had between the House and Senate and the state comptroller over this SUP, can anyone claim any kind of victory? Brad Jones doesn't think so. He thinks everyone kind of uh, covered themselves in the opposite of glory. <laughs> but um, it does sort of portend not well for maybe future negotiations. I think we looked at the, the annual state budget. That was late and difficult to reach a final compromise on. Then this one dragged on late. I mean, I think it raises a lot of questions about the ability of the two branches uh, to work together and what that relationship will uh, be like moving into the second year of this session when a lot of the bigger, uh, thornier, more complicated and controversial issues, including taxes, are, are likely to come up. Yeah, there there is a, a win for the Senate in here. Um, the kind of controversial tax decoupling feature, that so-called corporate tax break, as some people have described it, that was pretty much widely agreed to be the, the center of the House-Senate dispute. Um, that provision was left out of the bill as the Senate had originally wanted. Which I suppose could be seen as some kind of a victory for House progressives who had stood watch in the informals. And I saw reporter Andy Metzger, who's soon to depart for Philadelphia and a new life down there um, in the city of brotherly love. Uh, he floated on Twitter that uh, this could be the Senate standing its ground and the Senate president trying to show the House that... Senate's tired of being pushed around on things like this. Um, and one senator actually applauded Andy's tweet. Um, yeah, Senator Jamie Eldridge. I mean, I think there is something to that, right? I mean, the Senate did refuse to back down. Uh, I, I think this budget, this compromise, looked a lot different than maybe a lot of people thought. The bottom line uh, shrunk by hundreds of millions of dollars when it looked like the actual route to compromise was going to be to include everybody's spending and just jack the bottom line up as high as possible. But uh, apparently uh, lawmakers are taking the warnings of economists to heart about a potential economic slowdown. So this was an interesting outcome, I think, all around. Yeah. And while we've often seen comptrollers uh, complain about lack of respect for some of their filing deadlines from uh, state budget makers here in, in the building. Um, in this case, the comptroller actually set an ultimatum, and while they may have questioned his authority to do so, they seemed, in a way, motivated by, by this ultimatum. Yeah, it, it did seem to help to have some sort of deadline, something to, to work towards to, to give the negotiations shape. And I, I do just want to note that we all here at the news service are aware of the alleged correct pronunciation <laughs> of comptroller being <laughs> controller, but we choose not to observe it. Uh, well said. Um, now, back on Monday, there was something of a damning report on MBTA safety protocols. Uh, and with the governor standing behind them, members of an independent safety panel uh, ticked off the ways that the T has questionable approaches uh, to safety. As far as the supplemental budget goes, Baker didn't receive all that he asked for uh, for tea improvements, only got, I think, 30-something million instead of 50 million that he had requested. Um, does that give his administration cover moving forward if lawmakers complain about the state of repair on the tea? I don't know that anyone's looking for cover uh, if things go wrong. It doesn't seem exactly like a, a 
duck and hide situation here. I think you saw the speaker perhaps trying to set something up as he's looking ahead to January. Uh, there's a bit of a situation, I, I think, developing where you have uh, the leadership on the House on record uh, strongly in favor of additional revenue for the T. Uh, you have a Senate that's not exactly uh, fully committed to taking that up uh, in the new year. Uh, and then you have a governor who says that he doesn't want uh, new revenue. He thinks that uh, it, his a capital spending plan, the bond bill that he's filed that has, I think, some $18 billion over five years. And then uh, also this uh, emergency money that he requested would have been enough to, to kind of get things on track. So uh, I think a lot of this is some posturing for uh, debates to come. And I think, too, it's worth noting that as transit riders are becoming more frustrated with the state of a system that's not living up to their expectations, they're becoming more tuned into who's doing or not doing what on that front. And so I guess all of which is to say, I'm not really sure how much political cover there is out there. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I, I mean, if you talk to anyone in the administration after that deal was cut, I mean, they were certainly very frustrated uh, that that 50 million got knocked down. When you have uh, lawmakers, transit advocates, a, a lot of people out there uh, focused on transportation issues, talking about not the need for 50 million, but uh, probably 500 million or, or even more than that needed for infrastructure and the T, uh, and, and they're squabbling over $18 million. It seems uh, a little uh, incongruous, but uh, you know, this perhaps is all part of a, a larger scheme or strategy. Sure, especially as they look forward to January to that debate on a long-term revenue stream for the T. So the same day that that scathing report came out about persistent safety issues, um, there was that uh, smoky incident down in Park Street Station (laughs) that we saw come over the uh, scanner. And uh, how does the T get past all the negative press this week? Um, are, are they are they trying to rebrand themselves in any way? They could start by just running service better. I mean, if there aren't fires on the T, people will think better of the T. I mean, that that that's what riders seem to be looking for. You know, I I think that's really the the answer is there there needs to be um, for people to be happier about it. There needs to be improvements. Right. I mean, the governor has said the T will be there for riders this winter. Uh, they just need to to step up and show that. Uh, you know, I think the, the 32 million will enable them to hire some of the people that they've already been bringing on board, or at least pay for the people that they've already been bringing on board. And, uh, you know, they're going to need that to translate into uh, success in the, you know, morning and evening commutes. Sure. Hey, now, so as the so-called vape ban uh, effectively came to an end this week, let's, let's just talk about that for a minute because um, it is effectively over. There's still a few remnants, Colin. We, we can talk about that. But uh, the Public Health Council ended the nicotine vape ban or ban on sales of nicotine vaping products in Massachusetts on Wednesday. And Thursday, the Cannabis Control Commission eased up their ban on the marijuana uh, vaping products. Um, Certain products are back on dispensary shelves, particularly vape cartridges manufactured after the the ban was used up. Yeah, not sure those are on the shelves just yet because Mm. um, they had to have been manufactured Thursday or since Thursday. How long does it take to make a vape cartridge? Well, I don't imagine it takes very long. You buy the, I'm sure they buy the actual cartridge themselves in bulk and then fill with with their own oil Mm. uh, each of the cartridges, but um, they have to be tested as well. So um, probably not available to be purchased just yet, but in the works. 
Well, now that that emergency ban's in the rearview mirror, um, is there any way to tell if there was an explosion in the vaping black market, as critics were warning would happen at the outset of the ban? Uh, not, not, th- not that I know of. No, I don't know how really how to like get get your arms around the illicit market and and know you know one of the benefits of a regulated market is that you can track sales and and you can find out. Um, exactly what products are being sold when to whom etc uh but no i don't know of any way to do that with the illicit market Hmm. so while certain types of products got back on the shelves uh wednesday thursday uh retailers are still prohibited from selling uh those products manufactured before thursday marijuana cartridges any vape cartridge held in quarantine is essentially useless to the retailer uh while they continue running these tests uh what what amount of stock do people usually have on hand at these dispensaries or how much money are they sitting on there while these while these tests are run uh that's a good question i I don't know the answer to that uh but they do they have to be quarantined so uh for now they're just sitting on them i suppose there's some chance that they are at some point in the future able to sell them but that's not in the plans right now Hmm. you had followed the whole vape ban uh, in depth, Colin, over the last several months. And it's been an escalating conversation uh, first at the state level and then at the federal level. Uh, with the ban behind us and regulations in place for moving forward, any uh, any overall thoughts really strike you about this whole 2019 event? I mean, it was an interesting story for, for sure. Um, you know, Massachusetts was the one state that took the step of actually banning the sale of these products. Other states didn't follow suit there. Um, and when the ban was put in place, it was supposedly to uh, allow a chance to figure out exactly what's causing uh, the lung illnesses and injuries that um, uh, sort of started cropping up over the summer. Uh, and even in lifting the ban, uh, ban, public health officials said they still don't know what's causing uh, causing these illnesses. They still recommend nobody use these vaping products, but yet they're going to allow people to continue to buy them. Yeah, that struck me as interesting, that, that note of caution that you can buy them again, but we don't recommend doing it. Well, that ended up being one of the top stories of 2019, I'm sure. And I'm sure somewhere on the top 10 list, uh, we're going to see something about transportation or the T. Uh, but make sure to tune in to the Statehouse Takeout on the 27th of December, when we're going to have a little rundown for you of the uh, top 10 stories as balloted on by members of the Beacon Hill Press Corps. Speaking of which, just before the Press Association's holiday party last night, we had a little business meeting, and uh, members of the Statehouse Press Corps voted Katie Lannon as president. It's a real uh, real sea change, uh, Steve LeBlanc giving over the gavel after many, many years of dedicated service. And he had been president, I think, longer than the speaker has been speaker. So that's saying something. Also worth noting that Katie is the first uh, woman president of the Statehouse Press Association. Exciting. I'm uh, looking forward to to working with you, Sam, and our, Sam's the secretary, of course, and our new treasurer, Shira Schoenberg, for, you know, whatever 2020 might bring us as the press corps. All right. And make sure to tune in next week on the 20th for a special panel discussion with Statehouse reporters past and present about how journalism coverage has changed under the Golden Dome over the last several decades and where it's all headed. So that's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.